0: For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com.
1: Welcome to History Hack. If you didn't know by now, we are the revolution. That means we're sharp, witty, lots of fun, but it also means that we're essentially the peasants in Les Mis huddled round a table in the corner of the bar with no money. If you enjoy the show, please do support us. We have a Patreon account by which you can donate a small monthly sum in appreciation of what you're hearing. Alternatively, we have Ko-fi in which you can just do a one-off donation as a thank you if you particularly enjoy a certain episode. Either way, we massively appreciate all of your support. Hope you enjoy the show. Hello, welcome to History Hack. It's me and, yeah, no, again, I'm on my own. They've all abandoned me. Just like we abandoned Chris a couple of weeks ago, I have now been abandoned myself. But... I have a really awesome guest. We haven't had something on the Pacific in a really long time. I think Saul David was the last one to come and do the Pacific with us. But we found a very, very cool guest who is John McManus. He's a military historian and author, and he's a professor of military history at Missouri University of Science and Technology. And he is here to talk to us about General Douglas MacArthur. Welcome, John.
2: Hey, thanks for having me on, Aline. I appreciate it.
1: I'm so glad I called you a away. as so I was like, when are you free? <laughs>
2: <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, me too. It, it's, um, it, you know, it was interesting to hear about your work too. And you know, the, then the presentation you gave, I mean, I was kind of blown away by it. I mean, Thank in, in a see. sad way, in some ways too, of course, too, it was, it was really interesting.
0: You've
1: now made me feel really bad because I had to choose between you and Alex <laughs> on a talk. <laughs> But, but I did make it for the quiz, which was excellent, but you totally destroyed poor Claire.
2: I mean, <laughs> I, in fairness, I don't know that I really destroyed her. I think I just muddled along and I got a little lucky because I think that the the questions that Al and Jim came up with more conformed to my strengths than Claire's maybe. So, I think it could have definitely gone the other way. <laughs> I think <laughs> Under probably
1: the easiest <laughs> one was who said it, Hitler or Stalin? And I was like, well, this is a bit, you know, sometimes they overlap a little bit. And I was like, no. And I'm sitting, standing like way at the back, yelling. And nobody like, no, it's Stalin. And I think you and Claire both <laughs> made a mistake and you both said Hitler at once. I was like, no, it's Stalin. Frustrating. <laughs>
2: I know. And, I, you know, that was a really clever category, I thought, because, um, you know, those were deep dive quotes, some of them. Mm. And sometimes it was hard to kind of distinguish. I mean, I like to think that I'm pretty conversant on both of them, but I, I was a little, I, mean, I, I didn't, I didn't know a number of them. Obviously, like you said, I mean, there were a number of them that, that I should have known. And I think I got two out of the eight wrong or something like that. And it was like,
1: but you did really well. And it was more, it was more military style and poor Claire.
2: <laughs> exactly and so and even then I think I just kind of muddled along kind of got lucky on a, on a few of the questions
1: I think I wound James and Al and I was, I was so offended you didn't put any Poland questions in there I don't know if we can be friends anymore
2: <laughs> right yeah I that, know that, that's sort of the end point I'm sure exactly <laughs>
1: <laughs> just to make it a little bit harder but then Claire would have had a, Claire would have had a little bit of an advantage I think because like, she does do some Polish history so oh, I don't know if it would have been fair
2: it would have been, yeah, exactly. It's, it's all in the questions, and yeah, if the questions happen to conform to your strength, then then great.
0: If right. Not, who knows?
1: You and I can go off topic. I think for quite a while. I'm gonna rain us back in. I'm gonna try and do some raining today. Not. Yeah, like all right. A queen. Let's do some raining. Not like <laughs> a queen. I wish I could, but right. <laughs> so we're here to talk about Douglas MacArthur, right? First of all, yeah. some of our listeners, I know this sounds like a really, really silly question. Some of our listeners obviously are more experienced and they know more things, but some of our listeners may not quite be as experienced in this. First of all, who was Douglas MacArthur, number one? What was his prior experience to World War Two, And what kind of leader, lead her? leader <laughs> was he? So it's like a three-part question there
2: yeah so who was he uh Douglas macarthur is actually born into a military family his father uh had the sort of funny name arthur macarthur and and uh he, but he was <laughs> he uh arthur macarthur Sorry. fought in the civil war <laughs> he fought in the in the uh, in the u.s civil war on the on the uh u.s side and uh, earned the medal of honor for extraordinary bravery in a battle called missionary ridge and uh he he was just sort of born for military life and so he he became a general. He was a uh, three-star general, and he actually commanded um American military forces in the Philippine-American War. So, um, you know, like as an aftermath of the Spanish-American War, the Americans decided they were going to try and uh hold on to the Philippines, which they had helped liberate from Spanish control. Um they decided they were gonna stay there as a kind of imperial overseer, and this led to a, a war that lasted for years, actually a major counterinsurgency war that the Americans won. Uh so Arthur um, you know, has this kind of tie with the Philippines and his son Douglas, um, who's born in 1880 and graduates West Point in 1903, right at the heart of when all this is going on. His first posting is to the Philippines as a, as a young officer fresh out of West Point. So, uh, Douglas MacArthur is kind of this scion of this this military family. It's not that well known, but his brother, his older brother, was actually a naval officer too. He had, uh, he had become a, a captain, I think he had advances far of being a captain and then he dies of appendicitis of all things like in his early 40s um just terribly tragic so um douglas during world war 1 had earned quite a record for himself as the uh, as a brigade commander and as chief of staff of the 42nd division um and he's one of these guys who's very much connected and an insider in the army and so um he becomes i think the youngest brigadier general in, a, in the army at that point, and And uh, he's then sent to be the superintendent at, uh, at West point. Um, he has multiple tours in the, in uh, the Philippines during his career. Um, and the bottom line is he becomes army chief of staff at a pretty young age. Um, the age, I think 50 years old. And so when it's time for him to retire in the mid thirties, uh, he goes to the Philippines to help stand up the armed forces there because the U S has decided to give the archipelago its independence. Um, so, in terms of his background, it's different than any other uh, U.S. military officer in World War II because he had once held the top job, and then eventually when World War II happens, he's going to be like a, a field and theater commander. Uh, and he has this sort of second career in a way that we're, that he's really famous for, World War II and then Korea. Um, I'm trying to think of the parts two and three as I've droned on here. Um, Hold oh, on, parts part? two
1: and three. So who was here? What was his prior experience? Which you've answered, and what kind of leader was he? That's the last part.
2: Mm, that's yeah. That I mean, that of course is a matter of just of judgment. Uh, my personal opinion, he's a troubling leader uh, on a lot of levels uh, because he's uh, he has a kind of cult of personality built around him, um, especially in the first Philippines campaign in, in World War II. And what I mean by that, he's a kind of genius at self promotion and, and public relations, and he has very much political undertones to, to his, uh, his career, his outlook. Um, he is, he's a guy who will eventually basically run for president while in uniform, while commanding uh, an army in the field, which is uh, a big no-no uh, in, in the American system. He will flout um, orders that he doesn't like um, and not always recognize higher authority. Uh, and I mean this sort of throughout his career. When he was a young lieutenant, uh, an engineer lieutenant, He received like an assignment, an order to a posting he didn't like, and he just refused to show up. And he plays this sort of game of administrative chicken. And eventually, his higher ups do what he wants, Um, you know, because his his father was very well connected. Douglas uh, was considered to be by many in the army to be intellectually brilliant and all this kind of stuff. So he's always uh, he has this bit of defiance about him. And so when this really comes to a head, is Certainly, I mean, kind of during World War II in the sense of trying to run for president and, and being a hard guy for Washington policymakers to handle on some levels. But really, it's in Korea uh, when he's commanding U.N. forces in Korea and basically defies administration policy that could have led to a much wider war. It could have led to World War III. And it's why President Harry Truman will eventually fire him. Uh, and that obviously, that's very controversial. That's that's later in 1951. So. I think he's a, a troubling figure. I think there are some good, um, good aspects of MacArthur, and what I mean by that is, uh, as World War II unfolds, I think he becomes a really good practitioner of amphibious warfare. I think he understands invasions very well. I think he 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 consummates productive relationships with his colleagues and the other services, like to, uh, General George Kenney, his air commander, who's just first rate. Um, Admiral William Bull Halsey, uh, you know, Ad- Vice Admiral Thomas Kincaid, uh, who, who, you know, MacArthur works well with the Navy by 1944 and, and 45. He is, in terms of his, how he treats people, um, when you encounter MacArthur, he's very gentlemanly and he, he's very polite. He's cordial and he, he's he's kind of enjoyable to be around on some levels, except that he will uh, subject people to monologues, you know, like these, these endless monologues in which he's just going on holding forth about whatever. But, uh, yeah. So, um, uh, MacArthur is, uh, um, you know, th- those are sort of the good qualities. The bad qualities is the, the megalomania, the, the egomania, the, the, uh, cult of personality, the political undertones, you know, all of these kinds of things that, uh, uh, I find really troubling about the guy. So anybody who's read my work, I think, understands that I'm not necessarily a fan of MacArthur, but I, I maybe I'll say in... Uh, hopefully, I don't know if it's in my defense or not, but I at least try to be fair to him, because there are some things I, do, I think he does very well.
1: So what I hear is a bit of nepotism, a bit of arrogance, a man who doesn't play by his rules. However, he does have a few plus points. Am I on the
2: right track with this? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I think that's a pretty good summary. I mean, he... I mean, you know, the interesting thing about, about MacArthur, Alinda is that he has this idea of himself as an outsider. Um, he's constantly, like, railing against Washington policymakers, like, especially during World War II, like, like as if they're against him and, and all this. And yet, obviously, his dad's a three-star general and very highly regarded. The, the one disappointment his dad had was that uh, he didn't become Army Chief of Staff. And so then that became, like, the mission for Douglas's mother to make sure that douglas would become army chief of staff and so she would write letters on his behalf like to pershing and and other you know sort of power brokers in the army and so macarthur thinks of himself as his outsider but he's very much the ultimate insider on many levels um and most of those who encountered him you know throughout his uh like mid-stage of his career when he's a young brigadier general whatever they were impressed by him on a lot of levels he was always sort of separate and different somehow you know and and uh and that i think uh you know impacts you know how a lot of people will, will view macarthur and, and work with him uh but you know there's just, just these interesting contrasts about him that he, he has uh he has a monumental ego you're right uh and he's arrogant um and yet he's incredibly insecure uh when you, when you look at some of the things he, he does and how he behaves and comports himself especially as a commander of world war II. Um, it reveals a great deal of insecurity. And, you know, the, the idea, for instance, that there's people in Washington plotting against him and, and wanting to kind of stab him in the back and his paranoia about General George Marshall, whose career he just try, tried to destroy uh, when MacArthur was uh, was chief of staff. Um, and obviously, he didn't succeed in that regard. So they always had this very uneasy kind of wary relationship. I think Marth- Marshall handed him reasonably well. Um, so. Uh, MacArthur is this sort of interesting contrast. As, as one of his um, key aides who worked very closely with him said, uh, none of us really knew him. You know, We we saw just sort of parts or pieces of the man. I'm, I'm kind of paraphrasing, but that you know what I mean. It's like you all saw these different aspects of him. He was a very complex individual on a lot of levels.
1: The Philippines becomes quite important in this narrative. We're going to come to MacArthur and the Philippines in a second, but before we get to that stage... December 1941, obviously, you have Pearl Harbor, lots of things are happening. Uh, Even in Europe, there's, I think it's probably one of the most important months within history with so much going on. I say that because obviously, there's a lot of other important things. But in this context, it is quite an important month. What is the US Army's position at this point in time in the Philippines?
2: Yeah, so it's the U.S. Army at this point is frantically trying to to prepare for war because it's very obvious that uh, war with Japan is pretty much imminent. Um, of course, the, the U.S. and Japanese governments had had negotiations going on since the summertime, uh, really all centering around the Japanese war in China and, and all that business. So um, what had happened in the Philippines is, you know, MacArthur gets there in the late 30s and he's trying to kind of create a military force out of whole cloth. Um, And sort of with the the U.S. military model, like with a National Guard kind of set up and all that. Um, And then, of course, the the crisis with Japan looms, 1940 and 41. And so you start to see more um, U.S. military reinforcements coming to the archipelago. But by the eve of war, that's still only about 20 to 25 percent of his force. So this is a unique army in American military history in that it's a a kind of British style colonial army um, that is primarily made up of locals with a leavening of, uh, uh, you know, home country troops. Um, And so this is all happening kind of frantically, trying to deploy air assets to the Philippines, naval assets, um, and and as many ground troops as possible. But most of the manpower is Filipino. And and so some of these guys are trained up pretty well. Some of them are great soldiers. Some of them are not. Some of them are not that well-armed. I mean, so MacArthur... Uh, really, uh, honestly, he really botches this this whole beginning of the war because he decides, um you know, I think I can defend Luzon, the largest island with Manila. He decides, I think I can defend it all along the coastline, and there's a lot of coastline on Luzon. And so he kind of penny packets his, his troops out uh, all around the island when the, uh, the original war plan was to, to basically if the Japanese invaded, to kind of hunker down at Bataan, which was really good defensible ground. It's a peninsula opposite Manila. You could hold Manila, and then the Navy could could fight an engagement with the Imperial Japanese Navy and come and reinforce you, and you could hold on to, to the key parts of Luzon. Um, so MacArthur rejects that, and he has this sort of Rommel type of vision of let's stop them at the waterline, very similar to what Rommel will do you know, in France in 1944, and they both have the same results. They, they fail. Spectacularly, um, so this is one I of the reasons why here, the campaign sorry. goes as badly as it does.
1: So I want to jump in. I apologize for cutting you off. I want to understand why he made that decision. What? what why is he completely throwing away the plans and basically going at it in his in his in his own way? Do we because know? Because
2: he thinks he. I mean, part of it is that. He thinks it will reassure the Filipinos. MacArthur loved the people of the Philippines, and he, he truly had a bond with them. Um, Manila was home to him. He he, uh, he had he had not been to the United States since uh, I think 1937, and he won't go back until 1951. Um, you know, so he had actually lived in Manila at the um, in a, in a penthouse apartment in the Manila Hotel with his uh, his young wife Jean, that was a second wife, and his young son Arthur, and he felt that. He didn't really want to give up any Filipino soil that he didn't have to. And, you know, of course, in the abstract, that makes sense. But when you talk about the limited military forces he's got and the fact that he's not necessarily going to control the air and the sea, and of course, that's going to be a real problem going forward, Um, and and how much defensible terrain you'd have there, <laughs> uh, it's just just too big of a gulp. And, and so, yeah, I mean, but it also shows that MacArthur you know, will kind of go his own way and do whatever he wants. Because the original plan, generally called War Plan Orange, had been in the works for 20 years. And and, he, and almost to his credit, I guess I'll say, that once it's clear that the, the whole defend at the coastline thing hasn't worked, he reverts to War Plan Orange, and of course the remnants of the army end up back in Bataan. Now, I should point out too, the massive consequence of this is logistical. Because, um, you know, if you're going to be defending along the coastline, then your supply depots, your other logistical nodes are going to be located there rather than in Bataan. So most of those supplies are lost. And by the time the army gets to Bataan, it is in a terrible logistical state. It has maybe about a month or a month and a half worth of supplies on hand. And so that's the major consequence of this decision that he makes.
1: Let's switch perspectives here. So the Japanese... Are eventually going to invade the Philippines. What are their initial targets, and why are they inv- invading the Philippines in the first place? What is the actual point?
2: Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a great question because the, invading the Philippines on some levels doesn't make that much sense for the Japanese. That's a that's a lot to to uh, take on. It's seven thousand islands. Uh, it's arguable whether really any central entity can control it. Whether that's the Spanish in the old days the americans in this imperial phase the government today whatever it might be but the reason the japanese have to invade the philippines is basically this american bone in their throat Um, so it's like what they really want is what's called the dutch east indies in those days today's indonesia because that's where the oil the rubber the tin the bauxite all these resources that they want are down there but in order to have secure sea lanes They've got to control the Philippines. Otherwise, the Americans are just going to be able to to uh use air and sea interdiction or whatever to really cause serious problems for the Japanese and their new empire in Indonesia. What is today Indonesia? So, um they're they're kind of unenthusiastic about the Philippines, but they have to neutralize the US presence there. So um MacArthur will will sort of um cultivate the idea that he's massively outnumbered and outgunned and you know the, the the japanese have all these advantages and this is total nonsense um actually the the phil-american force outnumbers the japanese by about two to one um and and so yeah i mean it's it's kind of stunning but true and and uh the japanese invasion is kind of a shoestring so they, they decide they're going to invade luzon and so the first thing they want is an airfield, you know. So they're going to invade like the northern tip of Luzon, set up an airfield there, and then bomb elsewhere. And then they'll invade at Lingayen Gulf on December twenty first, nineteen forty one, and then move towards Manila. They'll invade the other side too, south of Manila, and to have this Pincers operation as well. So, um, but again, you know, these are not big forces; they're not well supplied. The Japanese have serious problems with disease, and and uh, but it's just that the the Allies have their act together even worse. But but the other thing I should point out is that um, uh, the Japanese have succeeded in neutralizing most of uh, MacArthur's air force, uh, a lot of it on the ground within the first day or two of the war. And this is, so we all know Pearl Harbor and what happened there, you know, the disaster. So this is a mini Pearl Harbor um, that that you have less excuse for because MacArthur knew hostilities had commenced uh, and yet still his, uh, his air assets are really kind of vulnerable and compromised. There's some bad luck involved. I mean, it's a whole rabbit hole kind of story. But bottom line, he loses, you know, probably about half to 70 percent of his air force within those first few days, which in turn, of course, gives the Japanese nominal control of the air and then maybe nominal control of the sea. Then that becomes the key to the whole campaign because it's hard to resupply and reinforce for the Americans. And, of course, we're fighting this global war which we're not prepared and resources are going to and fro. And so it's hard to really do much for the Philippines because, too, the Japanese are on the move elsewhere in the Pacific and and in control a lot of the waters east of the Philippines.
1: Question. You mentioned that the MacArthur's army had a mixture of trained soldiers. So some were well, some were in the middle, and some were not so well trained. What did the Japanese army have? Were they all the skilled soldiers or did they have a similar mix?
2: Um, They've got basically about a division or a division and a half worth of reasonably well-trained soldiers. Um, But their amphibious capability is by later American standards, honestly, kind of a joke. Um, I mean, they're throwing people at beaches, off barges, and, you know, they don't have like the landing craft capacity that the allies are going to have, you know, later in this war. Um, but they can get away with that because there's not much aerial opposition. Um, and of course they, you know, they have enough troop ships and the Imperial Japanese Navy is a very potent world leading kind of Navy at that point. Um, so the, no, the, the, the average Japanese soldier in the Philippines is disciplined. Certainly, um, he's, you know, not that well-armed. I mean, he's maybe got an Arasaka rifle, um, but it's the Nambu machine gun and the knee mortars around which their small units are built. Um, Their artillery capability is okay. Uh, It's probably equivalent to the Allies at that point. Um, So, you know, as things go on, if I'm an average Japanese soldier, um, you know, I have plenty of discipline and I'm certainly willing to fight, but I'm probably hungry. um, And it's very possible I have malaria or yellow fever, and that's intruding upon my capability to fight. So what really happens is this thing unfolds in the early months of 1942 and the Army is kind of penned into Bataan and whatnot. Is that the the Phil American Army is not necessarily defeated tactically; it's logistically. Both armies, to be sure, and this is, this isn't as well known about the Japanese side, but both armies are not in good shape logistically. And the Japanese have to reinforce; they send uh, an, a like a new brigade there that's just thrown together out of the equivalent of like National Guardsmen kind of thing. They throw that in the mix, and and they have to kind of divert. Some forces from elsewhere. So it's a shoestring for them too. But the good news for them is that the the Phil Americans are even in worse shape. Uh you know, so that's why this thing sort of turns out the way it does is a is a real disaster for the Allied side.
1: I have a rabbit hole to jump into.
0: Quality sleep is essential. That's why the sleep number smart bed is designed for your ever evolving sleep needs. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com
1: Basically, you're talking and saying that the Japanese had various different illnesses. Does this link into why... I mean, obviously, Unit 731 started for very many different reasons, But is this one of the reasons that Unit 731 were doing what they're doing, was to tackle all of these mass epidemics amongst the Japanese
2: soldiers? Mm. Uh, (laughs) I mean, I would like to think it was that positive of a thing, but I, I think it has more to do with trying to just gather as much data as they could at the expense of mainly the Chinese, of course. Uh, and a few other allied POWs. I mean, maybe, I suppose, that they think it'll have some sort of Japanese military application in the same way that the Germans do with their medical experience, some of them. Um, but, you know, I I I couldn't say that I see a link between, oh, well, we've got malaria and yellow fever problems in this Philippines campaign, so let's go study on these prisoners and have that kind of link and coordination. Um, it doesn't seem to me that there's that exact causal link beyond maybe the abstract but i also think unit 731 and all that is a sort of logical outgrowth to the to the incredible japanese cruelty that you see in china already uh with the rape and and king obviously but also the use of uh of chemical and biological weapons in the field that now we can you know they'll cross this next rubicon of these medical experiments and all, all this other business too uh, so it's uh yeah, that is a really dark side of the war. Absolutely,
1: it was just a random thought of mine because obviously, like you said, the Germans were doing the same thing, so that's why the little correlation came in in my brain. But mm-hmm. that, that kind of weird connection—I was just wondering if the connection was the same. But yeah, seven three one. And we did a podcast on it, so if anybody wants to listen to it, we we did it. Got—I think it was a couple of couple of years ago. Uh, like you said, incredibly dark side of history. Yeah. But let's move on. We've already talked about basically the defense. We've already mentioned that. However, you've also touched on the Japanese basically getting rid and destroying what was it, 70% of the Air Force.
2: Yeah, about 50 to 70% of the Allied Air Force goes down yeah. within the first few days.
1: Yeah, so 50 to 70% of the Air Force. But how did MacArthur and how did the U.S. Army actually react to the initial invasion of the Philippines?
2: Yeah, so MacArthur, weirdly, is sort of surprised by all this. So he's informed about Pearl Harbor. It's a, there's, I know, it's funny. There's a big time difference, of course, between Hawaii and the Philippines. And so, you know, when he's informed, it's uh, like in the middle of the night and and uh, he gets the word and he he's kind of confused at first as to the news he's getting. Initially, he thought it was a great Japanese disaster, the, the attack on Pearl Harbor. Um, eventually, you know, of course, he's disabused of this notion uh but for that next like almost day there's this weird kind of limbo that he's in that he doesn't quite believe the japanese are going to uh strike at the philippines and and that uh, that the war is really going to come to where he is and and so there's this kind of lethargy and and lack of preparedness and the japanese just happen to strike first with um, their air raids on Clark Field and you know like where a lot of japanese uh, the american planes were were based um they just get the jump on him. And I, I think that's the part that's sort of inexcusable. And again, that's a whole rabbit hole with the reason why that happens. His his air commander, a guy named Louis Brereton, who is a real survivor, and he's going to um, reemerge in this war in other places, most notably the commander of the first Allied Airborne Army uh, during Market Garden. You know, that that's, that's an example I'd give you. Louis is trying to, to kind of put together a... Uh, a a raid against the the Japanese uh, bases on what is today Taiwan. In those days, they called it Formosa. All that is, uh, you know, sort of in process. Uh, MacArthur has this uh, really kind of of waspish and and autocratic uh, chief of staff, lieutenant general, well, at that time, Major General Richard Sutherland. And he prevents Brereton from seeing MacArthur. And it's all this whole thing. It's the the kind of weirdness that surrounds MacArthur on some levels. Um, so all this leads to that vulnerability uh, at the beginning. So it, it it seems to take a couple of days before MacArthur realizes, yes, the Japanese are indeed coming to the Philippines. War has broken out and we better you know get our act together here. It's odd because he'd been preparing for just this. Um, so, again, MacArthur being MacArthur, um, there were some things he was going to, to, from Washington, he was going to take to heart and other things not. Uh, So I'll give you an example. In May 1941, when it's pretty clear that hostilities with Japan could happen, um, the dependents of American military families were ordered out of the Philippines. Um, So they all leave, except for, of course, MacArthur's wife, Jean, and his young son, Arthur. Um, Now, what you'll hear MacArthur's defenders say about that, well, he wasn't actually technically recalled to active duty yet, so he wasn't subject to that. I think that's kind of nonsense because it's obvious the spirit of the order and eventually he was recalled to active duty and thus, you know, subject to that order. So the reason I point this out is, I mean, imagine, you know, if your loved ones are right there with you in the combat zone, especially if you have a young son who's, I think, at that point, four years old or something, um, you know, and you're in this kind of very difficult crisis ridden situation um, that's certainly going to impact your outlook and your decision making. It had to be another layer of stress for MacArthur to wonder what's going to happen to to my wife and my child if the Japanese do take over, if they take us prisoner, um, and then he's putting them in danger because uh, his base is at Corregidor, it's an island in Manila Bay, and it's getting bombed and it's getting shelled, and uh, his uh, you know that has to affect Arthur, I think. You know this young child there, and and certainly his, his wife Jean is very courageous and. remarkable person uh, on a lot of levels but um you know i I just think that's going to be a distraction for macarthur and and he comports himself very courageously for all his wards he's a really valorous guy but i really think that that whole element of this has been kind of overlooked his flouting of the orders (laughs) and his willfully putting them in harm's way uh, and creating another layer of complexity to an awful situation. Uh, I think that's tended to be overlooked sometimes.
1: I think that's a really interesting point that you've made because even, I know this doesn't compare to having a wife and a child or a husband and a child, but to me, my dogs are really important. They're my babies. They're everything to me. And for example, my little one well, got really sick at one stage and I had to go away. I had to do a talk and all I could think about was the the, the, the dog over what I was supposed to be doing. Now I could not imagine this in a further, more extreme position, of actual active war, with bombs falling left, right, and center. You're supposed to be commanding an army, yet you might not be fully focused because your wife and your child are still in this. I- They're right
2: there. I know. I know, Alina. I know exactly what you mean. The same bond with my dog. I would feel the same way. And that's nothing compared to this, in a way. You know. I mean. So yeah, here's your wife and child. Right there in the combat zone with you. And by the way, they're the only ones.
1: Oh, cool. No one else
2: is are there. So you don't have you can't take solace in that. I mean, uh, and and so he Jane will be with him through the rest of the war, pretty much. I mean, and not always at the front or whatever. Eventually when MacArthur gets out and he's based in Australia, she and Arthur will be there. Um and there will be times where they're they'll be separated when when MacArthur is, is moving forward like a New Guinea and, and running ops there and all that. But eventually, once they come back to the Philippines in forty-four and forty-five. Gene will rejoin him and uh, and then be in some, you know, some semblance of danger at times. Uh, you know, and, and there's, there's there's a little anecdote about that in terms of Arthur's development. When they come back to the Philippines, um, you know, in, in 1944 and 45 and, and Arthur's with them again and they're in Manila, um, you know, you can hear the artillery pounding, uh, you know, to, at the front several miles away. And, and Arthur is absolutely terrified. And, you know, initially he's about to just double over and and he asks his mother, you know, are those our our guns or theirs? You know, because presumably he remembers theirs when they pounded Corregidor a few years earlier. And I I just, I I mean, just, it's hard for me to really sign off on that, I guess. I I just don't think that was the right thing for MacArthur to do, um, especially in relation to a young son. Um, and And I also think it shows just this tendency to say, well, the rules don't really apply to me. So, if I'm serving under MacArthur and I'm separated from my family, um, you know, how, am I going to resent him? The, the, and, and some did, believe you me, I found plenty of, of uh, accounts of, of those who did because they, they thought this isn't appropriate.
1: He's also very selfish, he's mm-hmm. an incredibly selfish human being for putting your son and your wife in danger, and not just that, the psychology of his son. And as he's young, he's going through such an impressionable age. And it's going to leave exactly. everlasting damage on this poor child. So that is my, I'm now going to officially call MacArthur selfish.
2: In that respect, absolutely. Yeah. And and in other respects too, in terms of his megalomania, um, just, just, oh my gosh, the self-centeredness that you will see with him, which just makes you cringe at, at times. Um, and yet I'll also say this for him too. that i think he truly cares for his soldiers. Um, and especially later, you know, of course we all know how the Philippines campaign turns out. Uh it's it's a terrible end to this whole thing, and about twenty thousand Americans end up as POWs, about sixty thousand Filipinos. Um, you know, really for the rest of World War II, MacArthur cared deeply for them. It was animated by trying to to liberate them and and you know sort of redeem the philippines and all those kind of business too so you see this other side to him but yes you also see this on the personal level really selfish um you know and and what's interesting too is is, is Jean's role in all this just how remarkable she was uh in terms of physical courage but in terms of the kind of person she was by all accounts um of really just forging good relationships with everybody around her, her consideration, um, the respect she showed the and caring of the soldiers. Uh she was really quite an asset on that level for him. Um you know, but but I also think he's at times exposing her to danger that, that maybe shouldn't be, but I don't know. That it's the weird world of MacArthur, I guess.
1: <laughs> so he's well, Philippines have been invaded. Things are not going quite as well as uh, he, he was hoping for. You then have the battle. I'm not going to pronounce this completely incorrectly. So please correct me. The battles of Bataan and, and I can't pronounce the second one. It begins with a C. Per- or Corregidor. Corregidor. Thank you. Yeah. And so they end in complete and utter failure, don't they?
2: Unfortunately they do. Yeah, so um the army is uh you know penned into Bataan and really the problem is logistics as I mentioned. Uh because the army supplies have been scattered far and wide on Luzon. If that hadn't happened, that army could have held out for much longer than it did. Um but by the time uh you know we are penned into Bataan, well, if I'm a soldier, I'm probably on half rations and then maybe quarter rations. So now you're losing weight there's malnutrition uh there's tropical diseases and oh by the way the local population has to eat too uh so you're in a really bad situation there and and mostly what the army is doing and i'm referring to the army here you know the the filipino and american soldiers working together also what they're doing in most days is scavenging around for food as much as they can and when the japanese do attack they're going to put up a good fight but really, you know, if we have a squad of, uh, you know, 10 guys, you know, maybe two or three of us have the physical strength to, to do what we need to do on any given day or to repel that, that Japanese attack or whatever. I think it's amazing the army fought as well as it did. But yeah, unfortunately, it's doomed. I mean, uh, and of course, it's April 10th that, uh, that, uh, the, the American and Filipino forces will, uh, will surrender. Little, little irony about that. The the commander on site there was Major General Edward Ned King, um, and he's the one who has to to surrender these forces So that, of course, eventually leads to the famous or infamous Batan Death Marge and all that. Well, King was a uh, was a Southerner who had been steeped in in the history of the Civil War and all that, and and uh, so you would think this must be a guy who who believes in like the lost cause and and you know uh, racial segregation and all that. No. King was very much against racism and he would brief his new officers saying, hey, don't look down on the Filipinos, um, you know, racial differences are nonsense or whatever. And yet King knew the Civil War well enough to know that the day he was surrendering was the exact anniversary of when General Lee surrendered at Appomattox in the Civil War in 1865. And so when King goes to to the Japanese, he has the, you know, Lee's famous uh, quote in his mind, so I know I will know go see General Grant, and I would rather die a thousand deaths. And so King feels the exact same way when he has to go reach out to General Hama, the, the Japanese commander, uh, for the surrender. And that's all he can think of as as he's walking forward. So he will he will endure, you know, several years of captivity. He will survive. Um, King was really I think remarkable on some levels, and he's kind of left holding the bag there at Batan. at Corregidor. It's the next guy up in the chain, Lieutenant General Jonathan Wainwright. Because of course MacArthur was famously ordered out of the Philippines by FDR, uh, and he and he's ambivalent about that, but he will he will comply with that order, um, and he'll get out and get to Australia. So Wainwright is the overall commander, and so this is about a month later that he surrenders at Corregidor after the Japanese invade that island, having pounded it. And there's a heck of a fight that goes on there before Wainwright's uh, forces eventually surrender.
1: Does he survive captivity?
2: Uh, Wainwright does. Yeah. Um, yeah. Actually, Wainwright is a fascinating story, too. He's another sort of military scion. Uh, his father had been a uh, an army officer. His uncle was a naval officer who actually lost his life uh, in, in an in a, in a tactical encounter with pirates in the 1870s. It's um, just a crazy kind of thing. And uh, Wainwright was a, a very well regarded cavalry officer. He's a three star general at that point. And um, he he just, you know, when you really look at who the real brain is, the tactical brain of that American campaign in the Philippines at that point, it's really Wainwright on a lot of levels. So when he surrenders, of course, it's devastating to him. And he was convinced that he was going to be just this sort of pariah, you know, that he eventually will be court-martialed after the war, he thinks, and all this. Well, instead, actually, he shows amazing leadership. Um, he The privation he suffers is, is horrendous. And eventually, once he's liberated uh, in 1945, he will get the Medal of Honor, uh, very well deserved. And and uh, he will be, I mean, it's almost too much. What a massive national hero he will be for the rest of his life. That it was more than he could handle. He was always a very heavy drinker. um, And 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 really, after the war is when you see that kick in uh, even more. So interesting little anecdote about Wainwright. You know, he famously is right there with MacArthur. Uh, aboard the USS Missouri and the surrender ceremony and all that, along with General Percival, who had surrendered at, at Singapore. Um, well, uh, Wainwright, uh, you know, is there That's September 2nd, 1945. And then I think it's oh, six, seven years, something like that, exactly to the day Wainwright died. Um, and one of the major reasons he died was was just too much alcohol consumption because it was so hard to handle. Uh, the adulation that he had, it was almost too much of a good thing on some levels. But he was he was a really remarkable guy.
1: I think we should do a podcast on him.
2: Definitely. I would love to. He's or really interesting.
1: We could do something like uh, Forgotten Military Leaders of the Pacific.
2: Oh, I'm all for that. There's another one called Eichelberger that I bore you to death about.
1: No, 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 trust me, (laughs) nobody is being bored right here, trust me, (laughs) because I'm very captivated right now, and that's why there's a trick, I'll tell you the trick later, MacArthur then, well, you said he's ordered out by FDR, he vows to come back, you've mentioned a little bit about how the campaign affects him, because he is worried about his men, but what else is going on with him, that he, is he depressed, is he, what is happening
2: He's absolutely devastated of what's happened here. Um, I mean, he's he's comported himself um, very well in terms of physical courage and bravery. Um, he's been in Corregidor really most of the time. He visits Bataan, I think, only once. Uh, but his communiques make it seem like he's right at the front, constantly leading guys. So there's that complete disingenuousness that that tends to surround him. But in terms of how he behaves on Corregidor, he's a, he's a kind of inspirational figure uh, for many people. And so... The orders come in February from Washington, DC, to, to get him out. Now the reason is because there's been this massive cult of personality around him at a time when you got all this bad news and the country really needs a hero to rally around, and he's that guy and he understands this. So FDR understands this and he feels it'd just be too devastating to see MacArthur become a prisoner. But also Gene and Arthur, you know, is his wife and son, and so there's that element to it as well. So you have this um you know, when, when MacArthur gets the order, he kind of drags his feet a little bit because he knows technically I'll be abandoning my guys, but he also realizes, oh, I want to leave. So what he does, he has this kind of what I think is a kind of psychological fig leaf. Uh, he convinces himself that he's being ordered out because Washington has put together all these reinforcements that he's going to then command to come right back. Um, now, he's smart enough to know that's nonsense. Because if those existed, they would have been sent in the first place, right? So um that's the way i view it at least but um so uh the bottom line is he and and members of his staff like sutherland uh you know like there's about a dozen and a half others um are spirited out on pt boats uh right under the nose of the japanese it's quite a daring thing and uh quite quite an epic kind of thing they get they eventually get to uh, farther south in the Philippines where they, they get onto B-17s um, and then are flown eventually to Australia successfully. They do get out, but it's it's quite an epic escape. And then he famously says, I shall return, um, which is very MacArthur-esque of saying, you know, it's all about me. And and uh, he's committing the U.S. to come back to the Philippines. And, and uh, so this is really what animates him for that next two and a half years or so is wanting to get back to the Philippines to liberate the archipelago. Um, Some would argue, uh, you know, maybe a little bit of tongue-in-cheek, but maybe not, that he's more interested in liberating the Philippines than defeating Japan, ultimately. And uh, now now he would tell you, I think one leads to the other, you know, so fair point. But um, uh, that's that's really what's going to occupy him for that next couple of three years, is coming back and liberating uh, the Philippines, which he sees as, uh, if there's a bigger word than crusade, uh, I guess we would use that word.
1: There's so much more to this story, obviously. We're running out of time. <laughs> <laughs> I think we've got to get you back to do a bit more of MacArthur and how this all ends. But just to poke the bear a little bit at the end, because I, I know that we have ways this came up a couple of times. So I just, it's, it's one of the questions I think is just a little bit fun here, is because... It's always about the U.S. Marine Corps, right? The Pacific, U.S. Marine Corps. Everything's about the U.S. Marine Corps. But the Army actually did have a role in all of this, didn't it? They weren't just yeah. like shoved to the side and forgot. Well, they have been a little bit shoved to the side and forgotten, but
2: yeah. <laughs> They've definitely been forgotten, unfortunately. They, yeah, the Army actually had the major role. Um certainly it's its a naval war, too. I, I wouldn't argue otherwise. But in terms of the ground fighting that has to happen, and that's the core of the war, in my opinion, um, the army does the vast majority of it. Uh, there were 1.8 million army ground soldiers who served in the war against Japan. That's the third largest uh, military force this country has ever sent overseas to fight a war behind only World Wars One and Two in Europe. Um, there were a quarter of a million Marines, uh, maybe. Maybe. You know, so uh, there are very few exclusively Marine battles. Most of the the battles the Marines are involved in, they're fighting alongside the army. Guadalcanal would be one example I'd give you just off the top of my head. And there's many others, too, um, such as Okinawa, many others in between. Um, So it's really the army does the vast majority, not just the fighting on the ground. That's true. But also the logistical side of it—the the aviation engineers who have to build airfields, you know, the the depots you have to build, and uh, the transportation, and all this unglamorous stuff that absolutely has to be done. Uh, the Army is really taking the lead, and that's—I mean—that's why I did the trilogy about the Army in the Pacific because I think it's one side of the war that isn't as well known as it should be, and it's really not to take away from the Marine Corps. Uh, I would argue that it's the opposite, that that really when you get a sense of how few Marines there were, you get a sense of how they were punching above their weight and how, how incredibly valorous they truly were, but you get a sense of the real context of this war, uh, that, it, that it is the Army's war on the ground on a lot of levels, and yet in our popular memory, there's this sense that the Marines did all the ground fighting, which I don't think is fair, and it's one of the reasons why I, I did the trilogy. John, we
1: have to get you back. I mean, if not to do one, two, ten, twenty, five different things for us because (laughs) Sounds fun. I've had a really great time doing this and we're reaching close to an hour, I think. (laughs) Or not not far off from chatting for an hour. But if you remind our listeners the name of your trilogy and if there's anything else that you think or you could recommend of yours that people can go out and buy.
2: Yeah, in terms of the trilogy, uh, of course, as the name <laughs> indicates, it's uh, three books. So Fire and Fortitude, the U.S. Army um, uh, in, in the Pacific, is uh, that covers 1941 to 1943. Uh, the second one is called Island Infernos, um, uh, the Army's Pacific War Odyssey, 1944. And then the last one that just came out this year is called To the End of the Earth, the U.S. Army and the Downfall of Japan, 1945. So it's such a huge story that it had to be broken up into those those three different books, um, and it's just—I mean, I'll tell you—it's just so fascinating, like the, the human story, this, the complexity of it all. But uh, you, you see, like from privates to generals, what this really was, and and that's kind of what excites me about about the story because because also too, like if we're applying it to like today's geopolitics, if we look back and we we just think the Pacific War was. The Navy's war with a few expeditionary kind of operations by the Marines. We we misunderstand what war in the future could be against a peer operator in that part of the world. That, yes, it's oceanic, of course, and, and that maritime you know, struggle, it's a big part of it. But in the end, um, humans have to control ground. And, and uh, really, you're going to need the Army for that more than anything. So I think that's one of the lessons that maybe the trilogy can help teach us.
1: I already have ideas of what I want you to come and do. So uh, the, the list is going in the back of my head, but we'll talk about it later. But listen, it's been great to have you on. We'll get your books into our bookshop anyway, so people can grab themselves a copy. Then Chris usually does the spiel. Mine's not as good. Then they won't be uh, done by the, what you call it, place. But oh God, I can't even do this anymore. The, the shop <laughs> that is named after a, a very famous river, And you'll get a bigger chunk, we'll get a tiny chunk, and then local bookshops will also get a chunk about it too. So thank you so much.
2: Terrific. Thanks so much. I appreciate it, Alina.
1: Our incredible guests give us 45 minutes of their time to join us and talk about their work or their new book. This is just a small taster. As a result, we have launched our very own bookshop on bookshop.org, where you can find our guests' latest books You can support them and you can support us on History Hack. 10% of every sale via our bookshop supports the podcast and allows us to keep going and bring you more top-of-the-line guests. You can find our bookshop at bookshop.org forward slash shop forward slash History Hack or search for us in the shop section. Thank you so much for your continued support. We really appreciate our listeners and supporters. So make sure you get down to the bookshop and grab yourselves a new book.